You're listening to Innovation Fuel, a business podcast by University Canada West. Bringing you fantastic stories for accomplished entrepreneurs and key industry professionals. Let's explore the entrepreneurial world through local businesses and our university community. Hi, boss. Well, I'm not the boss. You're the boss. <laughs> Must be kidding. <laughs> well, let's be co-bosses together. Co-bosses. It's all about collaboration anyway. Everything is all about collaboration. Hey, you know something, Glory? Something that always, you know, complexes me. And, and you know, I complex me. We, we, we think about, you know, uh, third world countries and we see the challenges they're facing as they're trying to get into market, not market. But we also see a lot of challenges locally and connecting individuals and different minority individuals to business opportunities. And because they're in rural areas or they're in areas where they, they can't access some of the, the tools and accessibility elements of those services, this is a big challenge. It's so big challenge. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. Especially for indigenous people, you know, indigenous have a lot of challenges, especially entrepreneurs, indigenous entrepreneurs, if they want to have their business in their own area and reserved area or their territory. So what are the factors to be successful entrepreneurs as indigenous and how they can compete with others entrepreneurs and who are the players on the market what is the ecosystem for indigenous entrepreneurs this is very important to figure it out what are who are the players of indigenous entrepreneurs conversations about different things that are sort of entangulation with this element we talk about where we see some challenges here is that we when we incubate things we tend to incubate them in big friggin cities excuse my language but they're in big cities but they're not in these communities and you and I've had this conversation about live labs before with uh, with Petra I remember from a past episode but again, the live labs and the incubating elements and, and building these communities uh, and giving them the resources to support business development and business ideas within those communities, support that community and keep individuals working and living in those communities. Absolutely. But first, we need to know who are the players, who are the players and what is the role of the government, other institutes to support indigenous entrepreneurs. Let's welcome Jack Smith to the another episode of Innovation Field. Jack is a successful Indigenous business developer and director on the board of First Nation Economic Development Corporation. Welcome, Jack. Appreciate the opportunity. One of my uh, goals in life is uh, is a process of giving back, and this contributes to that process. And I hopefully our discussion today is beneficial to uh, the audience. I'm a Plains Cree person from. Uh, Central Alberta. My home community is the Musquechise First Nation, I guess formerly known by Canada as the Ermanskin Cree Nation. And so I'm a member of that community, although I'm not currently a band member through the machinations of politics and reserve system and so on. I grew up in the uh, foster care system and I went to university at the University of Alberta and the University of British Columbia and the University of Saskatchewan, where I attained a law degree. And then I went much later in life, I went to the Simon Fraser University, where I graduated with an MBA, an executive MBA. Having gone much later in life, I finally had the education. I was qualified to do the work I'd been doing for 30 years, which was with First Nations agencies and First Nations communities in a number of areas, including education and economic development, but primarily in consultation and accommodation efforts, projects, as well as negotiations for treaty process and so on. 
so that's kind of my background. I began my sort of entrepreneurial part of my life with having left the treaty position that I held for three years. I decided to take a little bit of time off and, and thought what I'd let, like to do. I could have uh, started uh, practicing law, but I couldn't ever cross that threshold because I felt like I wasn't implementing anything Indigenous in, in that area. And I, I wasn't sure that I wanted to make a living of building up and tearing down corporations and doing real estate transactions on a daily basis. So I didn't didn't sound very challenging to me. So I went to work to with First Nations as a consultant. And that's where I really became uh, more successful as an entrepreneur. And I worked in a number of areas, but actually in, during that time, I set myself up as a consultancy, but I worked to minimize the human resource aspect of it because I decided that I wanted to work with teams that were under the administration of the local First Nations that I worked for and so on. So things like that. Perfect. Thank you, Jack. How can you describe the Indigenous entrepreneurial ecosystem here in BC? Since our last discussion, I gave considerable amount of thought to what, what the ecosystem is in you know, the First Nations across Canada. There's 600, almost 700 First Nations across Canada. Many of the First Nations you can group into sort of national kind of groups, all the language groups, and, um, and there's also the... Um, and we're so different one from the other. I'm a Plains Cree, and I'm very different where I live on Vancouver Island. Uh, it's like England and France, or, uh, you know, the, the difference in, in who we are. And, but fundamentally, we have some of the same teachings and values across the board. Uh, so whatever I say today, it's, it's not with the notion that there's any kind of a cookie-cutter approach to analyzing and bringing forward um, any of the issues as well as any of the uh, the uh, solutions or challenges that we face. And probably I'll end up with that sort of question as a challenge question. But when I think of, of the question you ask, I think very much in terms of um, the historical context. My experience has been that both in study and also hearing people talk uh, from where I come from, at one time, for example, around you know, the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, we're a nation that used to roam from area to area on the plains. Uh, we are people who who hunted buffalo. We are people who picked berries. And if you were late for picking berries, you didn't get berries for the year. And, and that was critical and so on. And you picked your leadership for these different acts. You had a person who led the buffalo hunt. You had a person who or a part of the community who was stronger or provided leadership for the berries and the summer camps and, and the navigating and things like that. So those are all critical pieces. And each First Nations has its own, you know, set of processes and methods and things that developed, uh, traditions that developed over time. And then, of course, we have the interplay with the colonial governments and then the governments of today and the establishment of reserve systems, which are meant to keep people on, on the reserves, right? And so when it comes to economic development, though, so we had successful economies in the past. There's trading internationally across North America. People traded fish for, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a stretch here, and, you know, for different minerals from the interior of BC and so forth. That kind of was stopped when these reserve systems were established. And in, in our case, now I'm going full circle back to what I was starting to talk about in terms of, you know, we as uh, Prairie First Nations, 
were told to forget about the travel and hunting like that. Now you want to, us to become uh, agriculturalists, right? And so we actually got good at that. And we produced goods and we took it to town and to sell it to the local people. And we got really good at it. But the local people, the people off reserve, said, wow, those guys are, you know, producing marketable products that are competing with the products we're making. And so we can't have that. You have to make some kind of a law or regulation that keeps them on reserve. They can't do business here. So that was an impediment back in the day. We're past that point now, thank heavens. But we did face that at one time. So even if we got good at being, you know, agriculturalists, they didn't want us to be agriculturalists. They just wanted to be farmers so we could produce our own food and take care of ourselves while we're on the reserve, right? So you have those kinds of things. So so today you got the people moved on to reserves, and you have reserves that have natural resources, and you have reserves that are without natural resources. Even in the middle of an economic epicenter like central Vancouver Island, for example. I, I know of one reserve that was established and it has no, uh, virtually no, no economy within the reserve and doesn't participate very much in the economy, the surrounding economy, which uh, has a booming and thriving diverse economy in forestry, fishery, uh, tourism, etc. So that situation exists, and that reserve might as well be placed, you know, in the middle of the Arctic. So that's going to be part of the challenge: is is what sort of process? How can we get that? So what what we do see is is, is some reserves in that situation will say, okay, well, since we can't, or it seems to be tough to develop an economy on reserve, you know, with the full multiplier effect, and you know the. There isn't even a the, the reserve I'm thinking of. There isn't even a sort of a gas station and a grocery store, uh, that sort of thing on reserve. So even basic necessities that could be provided by those kinds of services, uh, stores, businesses, then um, you know there, that doesn't exist there. So you go, well, we can build an economy off reserve, right? And how do we do that? And and then it becomes the issues become around the situation that the the, the those indigenous folks will will face is that how do i get involved do i have the expertise do we have the financial resources to get involved is that what the community wants because sometimes the community is worried about you know the cultural uh, components the factors there that if we start doing that then are we you know doing something that is not according to our teachings and so on some opportunities are there even when there are no resources if you're located near an urban location, in which case it's much easier to participate in off-reserve type economic and business activity. Um, and so those, those are the kind of the contexts. Also, that political historical stuff factors, you know, you get for a long time, way back in the day, we couldn't sell our produce, things we produced off the reserve. We didn't have money in, in the reserve, so we continued to barter. I'll trade you my can of fruit for the cat jar of uh, beets, right, or potatoes or whatever. And so you to develop economy, you have to have, well, as you know, you, you have to have uh, what, what your market, right? You've got to have the markets available and so on. And how do you establish those? The political part, or even legal, I guess, is, is that we're past that, but it's been a, taken a long time for courts and for Canadian 
governments and local governments of, of all sorts to recognize the traditional territories of the people. So it expands opportunities, right? If there's recognition of your traditional territory that goes far beyond your uh, uh, reserve boundaries, which in BC are very small, but where I come from, reserves are established uh, that are quite large. So that's kind of the context. I mean, you got the large reserves, you got the small reserve, recognition of traditional territory. So there's a political, legal aspect to that. And then there's all the, the resource things that you need to make businesses go. You know, the opportunity to fail and the opportunity to pivot, uh, the opportunity to gain the expertise, those are slowly being established, but they're not all in the same place for every First Nation across the board or Indigenous group that wants to do business. And to what extent, you know, what kind of businesses do you establish on the reserve if indeed leadership wants to pursue that the economic development opportunities become self to assist in the process of becoming self-governing to the extent that it can within the Confederate Canadian Confederate model. And then it's really hard sometimes for the community. You know, you have this notion of, of business. You see a service station sells gas, you make some money. We know that's not all there is to it, right? There is, can you service your debt? Uh, what's the margin on the gas? How do you market it? You know, what is the uh, the flow of uh, traffic, et cetera? And, you know, how do you complement gas sales with all the other things that are sold in the convenience part of the store? So that's what you get for, for kind of a context. And when I think about the reserve ecosystem, that's what I'm seeing today is you have the reserve, you have the traditional territory, leadership for the most that wants to encourage economic development. A lot of First Nations kickstart that by establishing economic development corporations because the individuals don't have the expertise or training or whatever it might take to move from that. There's a culture of dependency on reserve in many cases as well, unfortunately, as an aspect of a holdover from the colonial systems that still exists. Uh, we get a lot of programs and uh, other kinds of uh, sources of revenue from government and so on. And people have come to depend on that over the years. That's the kind of thing is how do you get out of that and how do you get into establishing an ecosystem and how do you diversify that? If, if those opportunities even exist. Uh, there's a lot of First Nations that are reliant, for example, on um, natural resources. And then there's natural resources that are renewable and some that are not. And then once the ones that are not are depleted, then, you know, how does that work? Absolutely, Jack. I, I just want to make sure that I understand. So you have Indigenous people in the reserve. They have resources. They have the knowledge of how to build the products in the agriculture, mining, and tourism. So, and then what you are saying that there is not enough of the skills of a scale of the business and do interaction. Am I yes, right? Yes, that's correct. I mean, that's uh, sort of a, an umbrella statement about that. What kind of organizations, I mean, not just governmental, financial institute, for example, education institute, how they are helping the ecosystem of entrepreneur in reserved area, how they are helping and who are they? Wow, that's a really, I, I would say mostly educational institutions are the key movers and shakers for uh, business uh, training and development. And, and there's programs around for that. I think there's some outside of that, there are programs with uh, federal government and its various agencies that would like to 
Well, actually, that do help entrepreneurs get started and learn some of the skills they need for business. There's a lot of gaps. It, it seems to me that there's not enough hands-on approaches taken, right? Both in the training and development part, as well as the, uh, you know, working, the mentorship, providing mentorship in, in any format that I've been able to come across that I would say would be helpful to individuals who want to start businesses or, or proceed with producing, you know, creative ideas. But there are some, I would say the people who are successful are exceptions to the rule. If you took the total number of First Nations people across Canada and the people who are even interested in doing stuff and then the ones who are actually successful, I don't know how they would align with the uh, you know general Canadian population and how that comparison would be. Because I know there's a lot of people who failed in Canadian business attempts. I have in the past uh, as well. What I see problems in, and I've actually attempted this myself in some ways, is is I've instituted both when I was with an educational institute that was First Nation run and operated on reserve, set up a summer program with different uh, economic areas uh, where we trained in those areas. I also did it uh, working with one of my First Nations clients. I had an opportunity to get some funding where I said, okay, let's take four or five, six community members. Let's put them in this program. We'll actually pay them while they're there, lend them some support and see if we can have some ideas come out of them. But generally speaking, the resources aren't common knowledge. You need an economic developer or somebody at the reserve who's going to provide mentorship or some off-site that can be you know, brought into the community somehow because there's a lot of remote communities. So that's an issue, right? Remoteness is an issue for many communities as well. But I think the opportunity lies in you know the fact that we can now reach out to the world, global markets and so on, as long as we're not stymied as we were back in you know my example of the plains cree and farming back in the day so jack i'm hearing a couple things here and i and, and back into my mind and i'm hearing the challenge here and, and you said something and, and maybe in my head i'm thinking that maybe there's a too much of a broader approach to this element versus an individualized community approach to this because what i'm hearing is is that when you said at the very beginning you said each one of these communities, indigenous communities are different. They operate differently. And if we take a, a paintbrush approach and try to paint the same picture, we're not going to get anywhere versus I think I kind of hear that, that maybe, I, maybe I'm hearing this wrong, but I'm hearing through the lines is that we need to be maybe more involved in that particular community in helping exactly. them individualize their correct. Ecosystem. You did hear me correctly. I just wanted to set the context out there because we always talk about the, you know, the historical and the socio-political issues and things like that. But they do impact, and they have to be sort of like gives us a little bit of context, right? So now, what do we do moving forward? My experience, you know, just by implementing those two separate programs I had funding for, and it was kind of a fortunate thing because it allowed me to experiment a little bit with it. And, and the community were, um, communities that I did it for uh, supported that. And it was interesting to find out where some gaps were for some people, even historical information beyond the traditional uh, knowledge of the, of the people, just the history between them and uh, the First Nation and the uh, government and so on was, was lacking. And it was like misinformed. But if you have the correct data to work with, which we were working on acquiring, then you can move, move forward from that. You can say, okay, here's what happened to us. Here's what happened to our people. Where do we want to go? I mean, that's part of zoning it, right? So where do we want to go? And so that's that's key, I think, because if you go to these other programs that we kind of refer to that, you know, government programs and so on, it's, it's somebody else trying to say, okay, what can we do? And it's well-intentioned. 
I do it too. It's like, what can I do to assist us with this? And I think we have to be very practical now. That's why the hands-on, the mentoring, we have to take support uh, financial literacy, for example. We have to support innovative thinking. We have to support uh, technological development and being able to use all that, actually use the, the stuff. And I think as we do that, I think we'll find more and more entrepreneurs coming out of the woodwork. A small community I did some work for, 220 people on the community. There were a number of people in the community who were very entrepreneurial. They grew stuff, garden, vegetables, uh, fruit, and sold it at the market. They created wooden spoons and other uh, wooden articles that they sold at the market. They created hot lunch program and went around selling their produce and so on. And and there was lots of things that they did. So the elements of, you know, people need to survive. So they want the cash. So they made the things and went to the market and sold it. And then they bought other things. So there's at a very grassroots level, there's a, there's a good example of something. But then if you start thinking a little bit bigger and, and wondering where you might access the broader economic things that are happening in there. And I think there's people out there who can get into that, who have the ideas, but not the wherewithal of how to follow it up. So the mentoring, the the establishing of some kind of program, what approach you would take to that. And I, I think that's the whole ecosystem thing. You get some very successful communities like, um, oh, say, Osoyoos Indian Band. There's one that everybody in Canada knows, or West Bank First Nation, another one, Squamish Nation, and so on. They have had certain things that, that you know, they've been able to leverage into building uh, strong economies for their nations. But I think Osoyoos is a good example sample because they almost start from scratch and sort of took a hard look at what what was it that we can do to build a business. I think they had a remarkable chief in Clarence Louie who, who promoted and brought a bit of a cultural change in terms of what it might take to create successful businesses on the reserve. How do we recruit personnel for that? How do we get beyond this band uh, reserve thinking about business development? And, uh, you know, take the take your produce to market, uh, not just locally, but province-wide and nationally and internationally. And you had to be pretty tough to do it, to get it through all, you know, to get past that history and into the future. And I think out of that comes a lot of uh, business spinoffs, right? I don't know what the size of his community was to begin with on a per capita basis, bringing considerable revenues, you know, versus some of the other communities that have some businesses. So thank you very much, Jack. I just want to ask you about, do you have any challenge at the end of our this episode? Do you have any challenge for our students about the indigenous ecosystem? But I think given the discussion that we have and, you know, thinking about the audience and whatever interest they might have in all of this and what research they've done and are prepared to do, I think it would be really wonderful if the audience could advise me or provide me with recommendations how, about how to structure my approach to economic and business development in either of those two scenarios set the context for, and that's one of them where you have the reserve and the traditional territory that has resources, natural resources, and that to leverage against proponents and so on, or the reserve and traditional territory that has either none or limited resources. So if you take one or the two of those scenarios and it you know, include what it would take in terms of input to make your recommendations work. So what would be the approach, basically, and what, what, how could we actually implement it and make it work? And what kind of information would we need, for example, 
uh, what kind of surveys and study of the community. Uh, you know, we all, I think every First Nation has done comprehensive community plans and looked at the, uh, uh, what, what some of the values and, and interests they have are moving forward. Uh, but, but those are the kinds of things that sit on the shelves. And until somebody comes along and say, hey, here's how you can actually implement that. Here's what you can do. Here's what's out there that we know about, but here's what's missing out there. But also, what about your community? If that's what they want, or what are they doing to move that forward? And I think that's really critical, right? Because it's, and I think that's what made some of the First Nations and Indigenous uh, groups successful where they have been successful. I love it, Jack. This is a great challenge, my friend, and a great conversation. I think this is a gateway to more. I'd like to continue our conversation, my friend, and maybe we can get you back for another episode in the near future. I mean, another couple episodes, because I, I just, I think we're just starting to touch the icing of the cake and we need to get deep into the, the really delicious part of it. I w- would love to get you back, Jack. It's been a great experience so far today. I thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jack. That was another episode of Innovation Field. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Innovation Field. We are on all podcast streaming platforms, Google, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Visit our website at www.youcanwest.ca slash innovation fuel. Also, follow us on Instagram at innovation underscore fuel.